Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. One August morning in 1967, two incoming freshmen sat in the dean's office at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Their names were Christine Rothschild and Linda Tomaszewski. Both girls were there to prepare for their first year in college, but they barely acknowledged each other. They were both too nervous to say hello. Instead, the two young women sat on opposite sides of the room, staring at their feet. The room remained silent until a young man burst into the waiting room, reeking of marijuana. In a drug-fueled daze, the man tripped and fell over a brochure rack. He landed flat on his face. The two girls immediately burst into a fit of laughter. Just like that, the awkward silence was broken. They struck up a conversation, and they had a difficult time stopping. By the time they left the dean's office that day... Christine and Linda were on their way to becoming best friends. Neither of them could have known just how much that friendship was going to change the course of their lives. In less than a year, Christine Rothschild would be dead, and Linda would become the only person actively hunting for her friend's killer. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our only episode on the death of college freshman Christine Rothschild. This week, we'll look at how police negligence allowed a seemingly simple case to go cold and let the man allegedly responsible go free. There's no better feeling than a personal win, and the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Christine Rothschild was born on November 14, 1949. She grew up in a wealthy lakefront neighborhood in northern Chicago with three sisters and her parents, Emmanuel and Patria. Both her mom and dad were successful and driven in their own way, and they expected the same from their children. 
Emmanuel invented the coin-operated gates that still exist in parking lots across the country today. And while Emmanuel built his empire, Patria stayed home to create one of her own. She turned the family's three-story home into a sanctuary of arts, music, and learning for her daughters. Many of the Rothschild girls had trouble meeting their mother's standards, but it all came naturally to Christine. Her grades were consistently flawless, and her extracurriculars were just as impressive. She was a writer and editor for the school paper, a member of the French club, and class president. She even worked as a teenage model, and by the time she was ready to graduate high school, she knew what she wanted to do with her life. Christine wanted to become a journalist and to attend a college with a journalism program that could match her high aspirations. That meant Vassar College, nearly 1,000 miles away in upstate New York. But although Patria had raised Christine to strive for the best possible education, she didn't want her daughter to go so far from home to get it. I know it's far, but there's a train that can get me back to Chicago in less than a day, and I figure I can get modeling work on the weekends to help pay for the train tickets. Young lady, I don't want to hear it. Not another word. You are not going to college in New York. But mom, it's not in the city. It's in the suburbs. I'll be perfectly safe. I mean, Jackie O went to Vassar. Let's be realistic. University of Wisconsin at Madison is only two and a half hours away. I hear the city is actually quite vibrant, and they have a lovely journalism program. I don't want to go to Madison. I want to go to- Want it or not, you're going. That's the end of that. I hate you. But ultimately, Christine did what her mother said. She let go of her Vassar College dreams and enrolled at University of Wisconsin-Madison. In August of 1967, 17-year-old Christine Rothschild arrived at the UW campus for the first time. But her first few days at school were a hard adjustment. She felt withdrawn and antisocial. After classes, she usually headed right back to her single room, put on a record, and wrote poetry about how much she hated her life at college. But all that changed once she met a new friend, Linda Tomaszewski. Both young women had grown up in strict households, and this first semester at college was the furthest either had ever been from home. The pair bonded right away. Now Christine had a partner in crime. The two would get coffee every morning, go gossip at the local Greasy Spoon, and spend weekends with their fellow students watching the swim team. But Christine's new life soon took a dark turn. She started to suspect that someone was stalking her. During the end of the first semester, she noticed someone following her home from her classes. Then Christine woke up in the middle of the night to see a faint figure standing outside her dorm window. It seemed strange, but Christine tried to ignore it. Maybe it was just her imagination. Unfortunately, it was not. In January of 1968, Christine started receiving nightly phone calls. At first, all she heard on the other end was heavy breathing and guttural sounds. But after a week of calls, the man on the other end of the line began to speak. Mm, Yes? Who is this? 
I like your nightgown. What? How do you know what I'm wearing? I saw you when you got back from the library at 9.35. And I see you right now. Uh, I... Listen, if you don't stop calling me, I'll have to report you. Mm, that would be a shame. Why don't you just put your pretty head back on that pillow? Sleep on your left side like you always do. Like you just were. That's it. I'm calling the police. But Christine didn't contact the authorities that night. She eventually confided in Linda about what was happening. Her friend told her to call the police. Instead, Christine ignored the problem and hoped her stalker went away on his own. Unfortunately, he did not. Around March of 1968, Christine started going to the library most nights to read poetry and flip through old newspapers. It was her way to unwind after a busy day at school. But soon, Christine got the feeling that she wasn't alone. Sure enough, one night, she caught a tall man peering at her through the bookshelves. He was there most evenings that she was, and she even caught him walking behind her as she walked back to her dorm. Then, one night, Christine stepped outside the library to have a cigarette, and the man finally approached her and said hello. Hi there. You know, I've noticed you around for quite some time. Oh, really? I recognize you as well. You're a very beautiful girl. Do you have a boyfriend? What? Uh, no, I don't. Oh, that's a shame. Well, how about I take you out some night? I think we could have a lot of fun together. Uh, um, no. Sorry, I'm not dating right now, actually. Oh, how about we just go out as friends, then? I could promise you that it'll be a good time. Trust me. What? You're just going to ignore me, then? I'm a very nice person. There's no need to be rude. I'm sorry. I have to be going. Have a pleasant night. Christine was certain that this man was the same one who had been stalking her all this time. And so finally, she decided to follow Linda's advice and tell the police. A few days after her run-in outside the library, she flagged down two police officers on the UW campus. Their names were Fry and Golem. Unfortunately, the two men were far from helpful. So, you're saying that this man has been following you for weeks now? And, and he approached you last night? That's right. And there was just something about him. Something very unsettling. I think he's the same person I caught peeking through my dorm room window, too. A pretty girl such as yourself must be very accustomed to this sort of thing. I don't think you understand me, sir. The man is watching me through my window. He's following me home. He's calling me up in the middle of the night Whoa, and- Oh, easy. Don't get worked up. Listen, sweetheart. There's little we can do with what you're giving us. You bring us some concrete proof that he's your stalker, and we can see what we can do. Until then, maybe buy yourself a whistle. The two officers barely even pretended to care. They didn't even write down any of Christine's information. They just blew her off and moved along. Christine was on her own. And her stalker seemed to be getting more and more brazen by the day. That spring, as Christine was smoking outside the library with her friends, 
the same strange man approached her. This time, he introduced himself. He said his name was Nils Bjorn Jurgensen, and he was 42 years old. He was at the University of Wisconsin to finish up a medical residency in general surgery. Although he acted as though he had never seen Christine before, he knew everything about her. Christine had a feeling that not only was this man following her home every night, he had been watching her all the time. He seemed to know what time she woke up, when she had class, and where she spent most of her time around campus. By May, freshman year was coming to an end, and Christine hoped to put this scary period behind her. On the 22nd, Linda decided to head home to Milwaukee and focus on some term papers. She saw Christine on her way out, and the two friends waved goodbye to each other. The pair planned to reunite in a few days once Linda was back on campus. Around 2 a.m. on May 27th, the phone rang in Linda's parents' house. It was the University of Wisconsin school police. They asked Linda if she was a friend of Christine Rothschild and when Linda had last seen her. Linda assumed it was some kind of mix-up. She did her best to answer their questions and went back to sleep. Her mind was filled with schoolwork. But as Linda listened to the radio the next morning, her term papers were the furthest thing from her mind. The 18-year-old University of Wisconsin at Madison undergraduate student that was found murdered late last night has been identified as Chicago native Christine Rothschild. Coming up, the hunt for Christine's killer begins and quickly falls apart. The internet. What would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loie, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo Challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to our story. On 
On May 27, 1968, 18-year-old Linda Tomaszewski sat and silently listened to a heartbreaking report on her radio. Her best friend and classmate, Christine Rothschild, was dead, and all signs pointed towards murder. Christine's body was discovered the day before on their Wisconsin campus, lying on the grass outside the school's physics building. Her jaw was shattered and both sides of her face had been badly beaten. The blue dress she wore was caked in blood. Christine had been stabbed 14 times. To add to the disturbing nature of the crime, her body had been posed. The killer had delicately placed a handkerchief under her bloodied head. The killer also forced Christine's umbrella into the grass next to her like a makeshift grave marker. Any trained homicide detective would recognize these details as the work of a methodical killer. But the police who arrived at the scene were far from trained. In fact, the first two authorities to find her body were the cops that Christine had turned to for help just four days before her death. The frightened young woman, who they had flippantly dismissed, now lay dead at their feet. And the two men soon found a way to make the situation even worse. The police officers carelessly stomped through the crime scene and allowed student onlookers to do the same. Any evidence surrounding Christine's body was immediately destroyed by a sea of footprints. And when the ambulance arrived, police immediately handed Christine's body over to the medics, who loaded her into the car without gloves or even a gurney. This completely contaminated any clues still remaining on the woman's corpse. Christine was taken to St. Mary's Hospital for an autopsy. Only then did authorities discover just how brutal her murder had been. The stab wounds on Christine's torso were small, roughly the size of a surgeon's scalpel. But in spite of the meager size of the murder weapon, four of Christine's ribs had snapped under the force of the stabbing. The killer had also torn a piece of fabric from the inside of Christine's jacket and wrapped it tightly around Christine's neck after her death. The killer finished his attack with one final brutal gesture by shoving Christine's designer dress gloves deep inside her esophagus. From the cop's perspective, it seemed like the murderer wasn't satisfied with ending Christine's life. They had savored it. But the Wisconsin Police Department had absolutely no idea how to begin investigating such a dark crime, especially after most clues had been ruined by the mishandling of the crime scene. In fact, by May 28th, only two days after the body was discovered, campus police held a press conference to announce that the case was at a complete standstill. It had gone cold before it could even begin. Well, this wasn't for lack of trying. After the initial mistakes at the crime scene, the Madison police had interviewed students, campus staff, and even the employees of local restaurants that Christine frequented. But they just couldn't find a lead. Meanwhile, Linda had returned home to Milwaukee for the summer, where she took a summer internship at her local newspaper to try and distract herself from her friend's brutal murder. She spent her days working in the newspaper's art department and finished all of her intern work by noon. After that, she devoted the rest of the day to investigating Christine's death. But Linda soon realized that research alone could not bring Christine justice. 
She needed to put in real work on the ground in Madison. She had to find the person she believed killed her friend, Nils Jurgensen. And so in August of 1968, Linda went back to the UW campus with a plan to find out as much as she possibly could about Nils. She started joining congregations of med students on their smoke breaks. After a few days, she felt comfortable enough to bring up Nils. Oh, yeah, I knew Dr. Jurgensen. He was creepy, all right. I can't put my finger on what it was, but something was off about that guy. Ugh, I don't know. I think it was a little more than just off. You could see it in his eyes. Sounds troubling. Thank you for the insight. It only took Linda a few more weeks before she stumbled across some real information about her target. One cold September evening, Linda was making her rounds at the medical campus when she spotted a custodian. The man whipped out a Zippo and lit a cigarette, so Linda decided to join him for a smoke. The custodian seemed to be in dire need of a conversation, and he welcomed her company. As they smoked, Linda casually mentioned Nils. As soon as she did, the custodian's entire demeanor shifted. It turned out that the custodian was well aware of Nils Jurgensen. Nils had asked the custodian for access to the hospital's lower levels and the morgue. But that wasn't all. Well, this one time, Nils comes up to me like an excited little kid. Says he has to show me something. So he brings me into this side room and pulls out a stack of Polaroids from his inside pocket. It was horrible. They were all photos of bodies, all cut up, dead. Women, men, children. You couldn't even make out their faces. He told me he was the one who did it to them. The custodian went on to explain that after he recoiled in disgust, Nils immediately changed his tune. He said that actually the mutilated bodies were victims of tribal warfare. He had nothing to do with it, but the custodian wasn't so sure. This was the first time Linda had heard something that confirmed her suspicions about the man, and the custodian just kept going. He told Linda that Nils had invited him over to his apartment to see more photographs, and that he remembered his address. The custodian even knew the name of the man who used to live there with Nils. For the sake of his privacy, we'll refer to him as Rick Hopkins. Linda knew she had to talk to Rick. For the next year, she searched and searched for the man. And in the winter of 1969, she found him. Dr. Rick Hopkins had become the senior medical resident at University of Wisconsin so she decided to pay him a visit. As soon as Linda mentioned Nils' name, Rick started talking. All the strange and disturbing stories about the man's old roommate started flooding out. First, Rick said that he'd seen the same disturbing Polaroids. He also recounted how Nils would often brag about the flirtatious romances he had struck up outside the campus library with pretty co-eds. But Rick knew the stories were all lies. Finally, Rick brought up a particular evening that caused his entire demeanor to change. He went completely white as he recalled the night he brought a girlfriend home to their shared apartment. The girl I was seeing at the time, 
It was her first time spending the night. It was real late, maybe three in the morning. I woke up because it just... It just felt like there was someone in the room. I opened my eyes and there was Nils hiding in the shadows like some sort of monster. He couldn't tell that I had woken up. But then he comes over to the bed, sticks his hand under the cover, and tries to grab for my girlfriend. The story just got worse from there. After Rick hopped out of bed to confront Nils, Rick said his roommate got incredibly defensive. The pair were about to break out in a fight when Nils abruptly left the bedroom. He came back with a 38 caliber revolver. He pointed the gun directly in Rick's face with a blank stare. Then, as abruptly as he had entered, Nils left the apartment. After that, Rick barely slept. The only reason he didn't make a formal complaint is because he feared that his rocking the boat would potentially threaten his employment. Linda pressed Rick for any information about the murder of her friend. It turned out that he clearly remembered the morning of Christine's death. That day, Rick woke early in the morning to find Nils dressed head to toe in army regalia. Nils barely acknowledged Rick's presence. He just stormed out of the apartment. However, according to hospital files and the testimony of a nurse who was working that day, Nils showed up that morning right on time. According to the nurse, he wasn't wearing any army fatigues, but she did have something frightening to add. I was standing in the break room. Jurgensen walked in and didn't get too close to me, but he made sure I was in earshot. He kept scanning the room, and then he looked out the window and said, It's a nice day for a murder. Up next, Linda finally manages to track down Nils after decades of searching. And now, back to our story. After Christine Rothschild's murder in 1968, 18-year-old University of Wisconsin-Madison student Linda Tomaszewski devoted herself to solving the case. Both the campus and state police had proved their incompetence, and Linda knew it was up to her and her alone to bring Christine's killer to justice. She even had a suspect, a 42-year-old medical resident named Nils Jurgensen. Linda believed that Nils had been stalking Christine for weeks before her death. She said he watched her as she worked in the library, followed her to and from classes, and even peered through her windows as she slept. Sometimes Christine would even get harassing phone calls in the middle of the night from a man she thought was Nils. After a year of investigating and interviewing Nils' co-workers, Linda's hunch became undeniable. Everyone she talked to noted the man's erratic behavior. He was violent, self-involved, and seemed like the kind of person who would seek revenge on a young woman who rejected him. Linda was shocked to discover that Nils' roommate at the time, Rick Hopkins, had even reported the man to the Wisconsin Police Department and they named him as a person of interest in the murder case. But as far as she could tell, the investigation ended there. She needed to find out more. One day in 1969, Linda called up the police department with some questions about Christine's murder. 
She soon found herself on the phone with Dick Josephson, lead detective on the case, and it turned out that the police weren't as clueless as she originally thought. Detective Josephson told Linda that he had been looking into Nils Jurgensen for the past year. In fact, they were able to keep tabs on him after he skipped town two days after Christine's murder. First, he shacked up in Detroit for about a month. Then he headed to New York City, where he rented an apartment in Harlem. So Josephson and his partner, Detective Lulling, hopped on a plane to speak to him. Detective Lulling and I got to his door, and we could just sense that he knew something was up. He wouldn't even open the door all the way, talked to the two of us through a crack the entire time. As soon as we brought up Rothschild, his whole demeanor hardened up. He just riddled off excuse after excuse. Then we give him the chance to clear his name for good, take a polygraph. Then he got even more bizarre. It says out of nowhere that he's just come down with some awful cold and is about to faint. But he agrees to meet us at 9 a.m. the next day. I figured that's the best we're going to get, so we leave. But the next morning came and went with no sign of Nils. The two detectives rushed to his Harlem apartment, only to find that the place was empty. Nils had packed up overnight and vanished. Apparently, the detectives' investigation ended there. Linda was frustrated. Josephson had gotten so close to Nils and let him go. He didn't even bother to stake out his apartment. This seemed like just another example of the thoughtlessness and lack of care that went into solving Christine's murder. It seemed like Linda was the only person who was really committed to bringing her friend's killer to justice. But it wasn't that simple. 1970 came and went, and then more years flew by. Linda did everything in her power to track down Nils or find another clue about Christine's death. But she was just a young woman in her 20s. She needed help and training if she wanted to solve the case herself. And so in 1976, she decided to become a police officer. From her new position in the police department, Linda continued to spend her free time trying to keep tabs on Nils. But between her job and her life responsibilities, there was precious little of that anymore. She had nearly given up on solving Christine's death at all until everything changed one day in 1982. On February 14, 1982, Linda came across a report of a murder that sounded suspiciously close to her old friends. An unnamed woman had been found about 10 miles west of Williams, Arizona. Investigators were calling her Valentine Sally. Sally appeared to have died from strangulation, and there was one piece of evidence that immediately caught Linda's attention. The victim's killer had laid an ornate handkerchief next to the body. The strange detail was suspiciously similar to the handkerchief that had been found at Christine's crime scene. With a renewed sense of motivation, Linda started trying to track down Nils once again. And this time, she found him. The now 56-year-old man was listed at an address in Marina del Rey, California. So Linda took out a pen and paper and decided to write the man a letter. It read, Greetings from Texas. Remember when you worked at UW-Madison in 1968? I'm sure you recall that Chief Hansen sent two detectives to speak with you after you fled Madison. 
If you ever want to chat about the good old Badger days, please call Collect. Would be interesting to reminisce, since we have a friend in common. Happy Valentine's Day, Linda. Linda knew it was risky sending this potentially dangerous man her name, phone number, and return address, but she felt like it was necessary. She had waited more than a decade for this moment. She wouldn't let fear stop her now. But Linda waited and waited, and she never heard back from Nils. Weeks turned into months, and soon it was almost Valentine's Day once again. And this time, Linda decided to send another card to Nils. Once again, no reply. As the years passed, Linda started a tradition of mailing a letter to Nils on every February 14th. She never heard anything back. At least, not for a few decades. In 2006, 57-year-old Linda received a strange package in the mail. It was from Nils Jurgensen. Inside was a copy of a book called The Case for Easter by a man named Lee Strobel. It was a trivial religious text that could be found at the end of most grocery store checkout lines. But inside the small book's pages was a myriad of handwritten notes. Most of them were hard to read, and the ones she could decipher didn't make any sense. At first, Linda thought Nils was playing some sort of cryptic game. She tried rearranging the letters to decode some hidden meaning, but she couldn't crack it. Finally, Linda had to give up and admit that maybe it wasn't a code after all. Nils was in his 80s now. They may have just been the scribblings of a confused old man. She stuck the book away and moved on. For a while, at least. Five years later, on February 11th, 2011, Linda received a Facebook message from a student at Western University in Ontario, Canada. The young woman's name was Jillian Clare, and she told Linda that she was studying cold cases in her criminology course. She had some questions about the murder of Christine Rothschild. It soon became clear to Linda that Jillian had a plan. She wanted to call Nils Jurgensen herself. Linda still had a Marina Del Rey phone number for Nils. She was not sure what good would come of reaching out to the old man, but she passed the number along. And so, on March 15, 2011, Jillian made the call. Nils picked up on the third ring. Despite what Linda had thought, he sounded sharp and coherent. Jillian spoke to him for nearly two and a half hours, and he was happy to chat about Christine. The Rothschild girl? I never met her. I might have seen her. She might have made a spectacle of herself at the restaurant across the street from the university once. (laughs) We heard about that. And when Jillian brought up Christine's death, Nils' response was chilling. She was stabbed 14 times? Wow. That sounds like an act of rage, wouldn't you say? She must have refused some boy or something. This was as close to a confession as Linda was expecting. But the biggest revelation was still to come. On the afternoon of April 2nd, 2011, Linda's phone rang. She picked it up and said hello, but the person on the other end didn't speak. All she could hear was... 
It sounded just like the calls that Christine had received only weeks before her violent death. Linda instantly believed she knew who was on the other line. It was Nils. He kept breathing for over a minute. And then, finally, the caller spoke. The Rothschild girl. No one was smart enough to check the autoclaves. That day, no one looked at the autoclaves. Tell Josephson. Tell him he wasn't smart enough. Afterward, Linda checked her caller ID. The man on the other end of the line was calling from Marina Del Rey. The autoclaves that the caller mentioned were chambers found in operating rooms that sterilized tools before surgery, including scalpels, the weapon that took Christine Rothschild's life. Audio recordings and a written transcript of Jillian's phone call with Nils were included in a full report compiled by the college criminology class and sent to the University of Wisconsin-Madison Police Department in 2011. But the police reportedly never reached out to the students or to Linda. And a few years later, it wouldn't matter anyway. Nils Jurgensen died at the age of 87 of heart failure. The truth about Christine Rothschild likely died with him. So, with all this said, I believe Nils Jurgensen was the man who murdered Christine Rothschild. He fled the police, displayed violent and erratic behavior on multiple occasions, and would have had access to the murder weapon. I agree, especially considering the phone call that Linda allegedly received from Nils in 2011. It was nearly a confession. But sadly, that strange conversation was the closest Linda would ever get to answers about her murdered friend. And regardless of Nils' potential guilt, Christine's killer was able to walk free while Linda was stuck trying to pick up the pieces. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. For more information on Christine Rothschild, amongst the many sources we used, we found Mad City by Michael Arntfield extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth and River Donahue. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Julian Smith, and Jen Wong. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs> <laughs>